Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Juicing the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I'm one of your critics, Joshua Tracy. Hey. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> uh, anyway, welcome to, uh, to today's show. We missed last week because once again, we are people with lives and sometimes that gets in the way of doing some shit for free. So, uh, tough. Anyway, this is a very confrontational show. <laughs> Which I think everything we do is a little confrontational, but I think that's part of the, the charm of it all. It's <laughs> so. who we are as people and as friends. Yeah, I think I say suck my dick to the listening audience more than I do anybody else in my life. <laughs> so. Especially your girlfriend. A- amen. Um, amen. <laughs> anywho. So we're here today to talk about the 1988 film A Fish Called Wanda and the 1994 film Clerks. Corwin Heller, do you have any preference on where we start today? Not necessarily. Uh, all right. Let's um, let's start with Clerks then, because I'm looking at the IMDb page right now. So uh, there we go. Uh, all right. Clerks was written and directed by Kevin Smith. It stars Brian O'Halloran. Jeff Anderson and Marilyn Gia, Jigal, Jigliotti. I don't care if I'm pronouncing that right, honestly. Yeah. Go fuck yourself, Jigliotti. Uh, <laughs> uh, this movie had an estimated budget of $27,000 and a cumulative worldwide gross of $3.1 million. So, I, I yeah, huge success. Obviously, $3.1 million is not a lot of money. Um, this is by far a uh, more recognized as a as a cult classic. Made a lot of money after its its box office run, but still, when you have that return percentage wise, whoo boy, did you make your money back and then some? So, I bet if you ask Kevin Smith in nineteen ninety whatever year you said this movie came out, if three point four million dollars is a lot of money. And he would just laugh in your face at how ridiculous of a question that was. Yeah, especially since, you know, Kevin Smith funded this movie entirely. He maxed out credit cards. He sold a good chunk of his uh, prestigious comic book collection at the time to, to, to fund this. Uh, goodwill from friends and family. Yeah, I'm sure he would agree. That $27,000 is basically all Kevin Smith's actual money <laughs> as he was a you know broke dude just trying to figure this shit out. Uh, the tagline of this movie is, oh, God, this is awful. Ready? Yeah. Jingle bells, bathroom smells, coffee's cold and stale. We're overworked and underpaid, but it keeps us out of jail. That's the tagline for this movie. I, I lost a lot of respect for Kevin Smith in that sentence. That's really bad. Oh, my God. That's, like, uh, aggressively bad. Yeah. That's so hokey. Uh, anyway. This movie has no major awards, wins, nor nominations. Uh, again, this was not a big film at the time or, you know, really. Oh, actually, I'll retract that. This did make it to Con, where it was the winner of the Mercedes-Benz Award, which I don't know what that qualifies as. It was a nominee for Golden Camera, and it was a winner for the Award of Youth in the foreign film category for Kevin Smith, all those for Kevin Smith. And Khan is, is a big one. Um, this was also a winner for the Dramatic Filmmakers Trophy for Kevin Smith, as well as a nominee in the dramatic category for the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance. And those are two big film festivals. 
Um, some of the other larger independent film festivals include the um, Independent Spirit Awards, this receives some nominations at, uh, and the New York Film Critics Awards. But um, by major, I, I guess I really just mean the Oscars, the Academy Award, the um, um, Golden Globes, or the BAFTAs. But anyway, um, this film is about a day in the lives of two convenience clerks named Dante and Randall as they annoy customers, discuss movies, and play ho- hockey on the store roof. Corwin Heller, this was your pick. You get us started. There's a lot to really love about this movie and just how personal it seems to be. Just being, you know, from the start, it feels like a passion project from a filmmaker who is making this with $27,000. Like, no doubt about it, the budget of this film doesn't seem like something that would be that low. But looking back, you see it and you're like, yes, this the most expensive thing in this film is probably the cigarettes that they essentially ruined throughout this. But even then, I'm sure they were picked up off the ground and smoked at some point. It's not a perfect movie. I don't think it's even a great movie, but it just has that film student feel to it like that film project that passion project that kevin smithiness to it that still makes me enjoy this and still makes me watch it not every year but every other year every three years just hey i haven't seen clerks in a while that's a great classic i should watch that again and you know it's not a porno even though they talk about sucking 37 dicks that is disappointing the first time you watch it i'm sure um but as many times as you look at this and say man that's just like really cheesy or really poorly acted or like oh what a stiff shot there's so many more like this is a great conversation this is absolutely a real life conversation kevin smith had with his friends inside his basement this is so genuine it balances it out just so perfectly. And that's really just all you need to know about the movie. Uh, I I would actually say that this is a great movie. I really, really enjoy this movie and I absolutely watch this movie once a year. Um, It has such a heart to it that comes through so clearly through the poor camera quality, the often bad acting and the limited sets that I just, it grabs you. It it really does. Um, And it's so much of what gives Kevin Smith the, I guess, gravitas or the weight to go do a bunch of movies after this that really just sucked ass. Um, Because you look at this movie and it has so much personal achievement in it and so much Mm -hmm. just greatness in it that it's tough not to look at that guy and let him kind of do other things that he just wants to do. Right. And I, you know, I think part of its timelessness is built into the nature of you know, just the, the setup. I, observational comedy is something that I think 
lasts a very as a very long shelf life. Mm. You know, if you look back at a lot of other types of comedies from this era and earlier, I'm thinking maybe Scary Movie was I think a little bit after this, but you know, in that type of vein, you, you go backwards a few years, uh, you end up with a lot of stuff that hinges upon more unsavory feelings. A lot of, um, if not just like sheer pure slapstick, which can or can't work, you end up with a lot of things where it's like poking fun at someone for being gay or poking fun at someone for um, disabilities or, you know, things that we have, by we, I mean, oftentimes oh, the white population have, have gained a sensitivity towards that just comedically don't really land the same way. Whereas observational comedy where it's like, this fucking woman oh comes God. in here and gets the deepest milk that she possibly can get. Um, that'll last almost forever, especially since people buy milk still. They might not buy it in a quickie mart, but they'll, they're buying milk. They're buying eggs. They're, people are buying cigarettes. You know, like the act of shopping is so universal. And these criticisms or comments being built so strongly on the back of something that is so day-to-day for basically everybody works uh, and and we've all been this age or somewhere near it and had conversations like this or worked a shitty job that we hated like this you know it is very relatable in that type of way um yeah i mean yeah it's did, before we continue did you know that they are currently filming a clerks three yeah i mean kevin smith finished the script for that like three four years ago it's just been wandering production hell since then so yeah but that, that that's been in the works for a while hmm. uh, yeah I, and i think you know a few of the other things i think this movie does really well the the doing so much with so little set i think it speaks a lot to how much the dialogue and the changes that they do make when they can to the scenery really helps it because this is, for all intents and purposes, a, a one-set film. They, they mm-hmm. go a couple other places, you see a couple other uh, sets. You know, there's the rooftop, and you're introduced to Dante in, in his house, apartment, whatever. You, you see Randall in the video. In his closet, room. essentially. But yeah, pretty much just the closet. Uh, you see Randall in the, in the video store. But, I mean, like, 90% of this movie is, is in the, the Cookie Mart. Um, and that can also be tough i think though a lot of movies that do like a one set thing often bring focus to the fact they do a one set thing and this felt very natural because it was i mean it was a shift you know right the only concern i had or or issue i had with the one set premise was how stiff it felt at times like it for the vast majority of it there really was never any break in the way that it was shot with it just being a kind of mid shot of just the register and the counter and, and just what it is just back and forth with that same shot, same angle, nothing special. They do have, you know, a handful of shots that kind of show the rest of the store or down behind the counter when he's down there with his girlfriend you know, just hanging out, but they're so few and far between and never felt like I had a good understanding of the space of the store. And while it is, you know, by all means, a very small, tight space, 
I feel like there's a lot there that was almost unused or just not felt in the way that it was shot. Mm, sure, I'm. It could be a you know a choice, but in reality, I think it's no. Just it, a Kevin, Kevin practicality Smith is, is, of just. Go ahead. Yeah, Ke- Kevin Smith is, is is notoriously a bad cinematographer. Yeah, I mean, like it's that just, is something that he is absolutely known for especially in his early works a lot of right. put the camera on the tripod we are not going to move it this is a one shot shot this is a single camera shot for no reason uh-huh. seemingly and you can forgive it a lot more in like this movie because i bet they only had one camera and they could only do right. so many takes and whatever but i mean and you're even in a convenience in store works, it's not like, like you're on a studio type deal you know right it's an actual convenience store not a set right uh yeah, what do you do? You have any qualms with the acting? Like, obviously, a, a lot of it is bad. But the, does does it oh, get yeah. to you? It did. There were definitely parts that got to me. There were definitely certain players or certain characters. We just did the sports episode. There are certain characters that got to me more. It's just one of those things where it affected it but I also kind of knew not to expect too much. So it was like, it's not like this is some triple a blockbuster, you know, suicide squad or the expendables, something where they spent a hundred million dollars in budgets. Like they spent 27 grand. You're not getting acting coaches along with this. You're not getting the time and, and, you know, ability to kind of, fledge out these scenes and inner characters it's just like all right dude you're a guy going into a convenience store to buy cigarettes go buy cigarettes and sure there's a couple lines that are just completely flat and just hard to watch but you can also just understand what this movie is like the intro like credits to this movie should include this costs 27 grand to make relax this costs less than a median salary, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, I'll, you know, like I'll, a lot of the conversation in this is like transactional. You know, you got patrons coming in to to, to buy milk or whatever. Can I get a pack of cigarettes? That type of shit. And the other uh, a significant chunk of it is normal conversation. I'll I'll, I'll put it stuff that is, has no weight to it. Um talking about star wars or complaining about customers when they actually get into something that requires a little bit of i think probably understanding your character or let me stop you there you think all of those millions of lies that were lost in the death star doesn't carry any weight with it what's wrong with you you heartless bastard i'm a heartless bastard what can i say (laughs) but like that that contractor guy awful. he was awful and whether he's actually a contractor or whether he was just someone Kevin Smith knew and got him to read the lines, um, awful, awful. I don't awful. even remember the character that you're talking about. The guy that actually was a contractor and he talked about how his friend did the roof job for some mobster and got killed, but he knew the risks. Oh, yeah. Fuck, that was bad. Yeah. And, you know, that guy doesn't, he's not, that's his scene. That's his one scene and it was not great but that's all you you, you got from him. whereas you know, a lot of the people that had like randall i think it was great the guy who plays randall, best, jeff, best part of the movie yeah jeff anderson is genuinely solid in this movie 
tremendous timing, tremendous charisma, you know, with a not great cast, carry the movie. Brian O'Halloran, I think, is good anytime he's talking to Randall and is rough every time he's not talking to Randall. Right. Like, it seems like they'd be friends and they know how to riff back and forth. And every other time he's trying to be an actor and just overacts the hell out of it and just doesn't really know how to act. Right. It's that weird, like, hurried energy that he has. Yeah. I think works well in contrast to the laid backness of Randall and, you know, obviously Randall turned some screws there. So it even makes sense in the context of dealing with Randall, but mm-hmm. he's so frantic and, and hurried in his mannerisms and speech in like almost every conversation he has that it, it, it doesn't land where, it, how it should, because you are wound up way too tight and that is the only emotion we're getting out of you, really. Uh, I was thinking that his... He just seems to yell just out of nowhere. What? Right, yeah. He's just always yelling. His whole persona is doing this the whole time. Every every conversation I have is like this. I mean, that's like, that's him for like the whole movie. Uh, which, again, has its spots where it works, but it, it's... You know, it, eh. It doesn't always. No, no. There's this thing called subtlety that um, I don't. He just does not understand. Uh, Marilyn Gigliotti, the woman who plays Veronica, I think also does a good job with this. Uh, as does uh, Jason Mewes and and Kevin Smith. I think they're they're both good in this. But you know, this this movie serves as a vehicle for for the dialogue and. That's what makes this this movie is not getting by on its production quality, which I think everyone knows going into an independent film that you should not expect earth shatteringly good production quality because they're done on tight budgets. And it's gotten a lot better over recent years as technology has gotten more affordable and, you know, you can do a lot. You could, in theory, shoot a phone on your shoot a movie on your phone that you already have as as the the movie tangerine showed us which is a genuinely very good movie that looks really good and was shot on an iphone um but you know back then like this is on an actual this is 35 millimeter like this is actual film mm-hmm. and i'm sure that's where a lot of the budget went as well uh but the dialogue is what carries this so you, you know you're poor execution on shot framing and the dynamic movement within shot framing you're relatively shitty acting in certain spots and your limited set work and set design you eat that because you're getting by on really solid dialogue and good enough chemistry that the dialogue can shine and that's what this movie really does and it does it really really well and there's so much that actually happens in the movie that gives the plot, the dynamic feeling that oftentimes the actors themselves can't generate because so much actually ch- like it's, it's not just 10 minute sequences at a time of Randall and Dante bitching. It's like three or five minutes of that. And then they move on to something different. And there's enough things that come either people coming in the store or then having to go out for some reason or some 
something happening like the little girl buying cigarettes or the old guy dying in the bathroom or the hockey game on the roof in between all those pieces of just nonsense conversation and complaining that the film actually feels like it, it is moving along instead of one big long I hate my job fest that this very easily could have been which I think we all could have also seen the value of and if it was that I don't think anyone would be truly upset by it. No, but I think I think what Kevin Smith has here shows a level of artistry that his means couldn't keep up with, but he was able to execute with what he got. Correct. I mean, I I don't want to just agree with you completely about the dialogue. I think the writing and the dialogue itself was not ideal you know fully through the entire film i think there were definitely some spots that you know i watched this 10 days ago so i i can't pull receipts for whatever context um but i think there were some lulls and and some ugly spots some rough spots to get through but i don't want to say that as a deterrent for this film just as a well it's not perfect in that regard you know it's not like it's only flaws were budget related or things like that, or, or Kevin Smith, just not caring about cinematography. It's, it's a good movie. I don't know if I'm ready to quite call it a great movie. I'll give it a three and a half. Fuck it. I'll give my fucking score now. I don't care. <laughs> Breaking format. How dare you? Yeah. Who gives a shit? Most girls don't bring you lasagna. They just break your heart. Most girls don't suck 37 dicks. Last one I sucked was yours. <laughs> That's got to count for something. My girlfriend, my girlfriend is in the room and missed the part earlier of her talking about 37 dicks. 37. She, just shot, she just shot me a look. Just snapped her head over and shot Oh, geez. That look. makes you worried about what her number is. <laughs> Josh is worried about what your number is. Okay, we're not going to answer these questions on air. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, I think for me, the weirdest part of the script is definitely the German cousin visiting that basically never factors in again, and they sing Berserker. I I forget that scene's in the movie every time I watch it. Yeah, that's weird. so out of place. I, I feel like that was just a guy who wandered on set. But at the same time, like, that's kind of one of those things that gives it that charm of just, like, random shit that's happening outside this convenience store over the course of a, like, 18-hour day. That shit just happens. True dat. I mean, fucking a dead body in a, in a bathroom. Haven't um, we all? You know, that, for me, is a little... That one sticks out a little bit more just because, like, even seeing this movie before... Excuse me, my goodness. Like sitting through that again and like going through all the details again. It's like, oh, like this was something that was repressed because holy shit, I don't remember this happening like this. This is fucking insanity. Yeah, it's dark. It's very dark. But I mean, hey, man, that 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 them's there, the brakes. Someone's got to jerk off those horses. <laughs> uh <laughs> Manual stimulation. <laughs> but, 
Uh, yeah, I guess if we're just going for it, uh, I'm go- I give this like a solid four, maybe even a four and a half. I really love this movie. I have a very soft mm-hmm. spot in my heart for this movie. It also takes place in New Jersey. Got to give extra points to that. Shout oh, out to, 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 to Jersey movies. Uh, I believe this is Red Bank, um, which, yeah, cool. Love it. I know exactly where that is on the map. And I can say that about very few places. I'm so bad at geography. Um, I'm honestly pretty good at like world geography or, or country geography, but my goodness, um, I, I don't know where Red Bank is. Oh, well, that's on you, buddy. No, I, I got that. Oh, I now know where Red Bank is. The more you know. Uh, yeah, so I guess that's that. So we'll just fucking like move on. Yeah, um, sure, dude. We already gave our ratings and shit, so I don't see the point in hanging around anymore. All right, so now let's talk about 1988's A Fish Called Wanda. It was directed by Charles Crichton and John Cleese. It was written by Charles Crichton and John Cleese. It stars John Cleese, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, and Kevin Klein. Um, this film had an estimated budget of oh fuck i lost it there it is seven and a half million dollars and a worldwide gross of 62.5 million dollars so certainly a success uh this film had a tagline of a tale of murder lust greed revenge and seafood yeah that's fine yeah um, i'm about it totally uh this film won and Oscar on the back of three nominations. This film won Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Kevin Klein and was nominated for Best Director for Charles Crichton and Best Writing Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen for John Cleese and Charles Crichton. Um, a movie is about, in London, four very different people team up to commit armed robbery, then try to double-cross each other for the loot. This was my pick, so I'll get us started. Uh, I love this movie and I haven't seen it in a, in a while. So I wanted to revisit it. And I was f- very interested to see, I guess, be reminded of how little the plot actually moves forward in this movie and how much the movie exists on the back of all the subterfuge and double crossing. Cause if you think about it, all that really happens in this movie is, you know, post heist, uh, the diamonds get hid by George, and then Wanda tries to seduce information out of John Cleese, and then they find the diamonds and they leave, and that's really it. Like, there's not a, the diamonds don't even change location at any point during this movie outside of their original displacement from George in the beginning. The rest of it is all about finding out scraps of information. And those scraps really are just, where are they? The one time. Because it's not like a Pulp Fiction where the briefcase changes hands a few times and the characters go on adventures in between that. It really is very, very linear and minimal. And the plot mostly gets by on keeping track of the double crossings and the motivations and, and dialogue and some really nice acting performances. Uh, so I very much so enjoy it because it's also just an example of some wonderful screenwriting. And it's fun. 
it's very it's a very fun uh heist movie that doesn't feel overly mm-hmm. actiony or too smart a lot of this is because people are stupid and greedy wait, wait not too smart are you calling don't call me stupid josh <laughs> don't call me stupid Although I must say, I've worn dresses with a higher IQ than you. It is positively bizarre that Kevin Klein won an Oscar for this performance. Yeah, I will fully admit that is super fucking weird. Yeah, out of all the great things about this film, his performance is probably the least memorable. And that year, I just want to shout out the people he beat that year because it makes even less sense in context. He beat Dean Stockwell for Married to the Mob. All right, whatever. He beat Alec Guinness for Little Dorrit, Martin Landau for Tucker, the Man in His Dream, and River Phoenix for Running on Empty. Those three dudes are three powerhouse actors, and they lost to Kevin Klein in A Fish Called Wanda. Absolutely bizarre. <laughs> anyway, Corbin Heller, tell me what you think about this movie. Um, this is the second time attempting to watch this. The first time I tried to get into it because of how much you raved about it, how much I've heard great things about it, yada, yada, yada. Uh, I mentioned the bisque. Um, and it blew me away by how much of a better experience I had watching it through this time than I did the first time. The first half an hour of this film does really nothing to draw you in. Like it introduces the characters, it introduces the predicament, it it gives you that background, but you're not really getting the feel for what this movie really is. And then it just kind of opens up and it's just, it's fun. Like it doesn't blow me away in any one area, like one category that we always end up talking about, but it's just such a fun movie. Like the whole premise of Jamie Lee Curtis just getting everyone to fall in love with her so that she can make money is a really fun A story of, you know, double cross and conniving and and just two men, I guess three men just fighting over each other for her love. And then just a B story of a guy killing a bunch of dogs, just desperately trying to save all the animals he can. And just not being able to stop killing these dogs fucking had me in tears. Just that entire B plot. Just I forget his the character's name. It's like Kenneth. I think it is. Yeah, Ken. I fucking love that storyline so much. It's so much fun. I mean, it's the Monty Python crew. Like, what more can you expect? Like, they're so fucking funny. Also, isn't it wild to think? that when this movie came out, those two guys had already been working together for almost 30 years. <sighs> and 30 years later, they're still alive and still not working, but like in like uh, fucking Michael Palin was just in a couple years ago. Uh, the death of Solomon. Like he, they, yeah, they still work. I love them. I love them both. Oh, yeah. please survive forever. Please outlive me. I love them. They're so good. Um, And, and, you know, it's, it's nice that no one has their head on straight. (laughs) Oh yeah. And, and and that there's, it's also nice to see some expectations or some standards kind of be 
subverted or not adhered to. Like the idea that John Cleese is attracted to Jamie Lee Curtis, yes, as an attractive woman, but also it's like he is looking for an escape from his life. His wife doesn't give a fuck about him. He doesn't seem to really care too much for her either. Uh, His kid is present, but not too much of a factor. She seems like she's wrapped up in her own teenage girl thing, such as life. Uh, and sees Jamie Lee Curtis not just as a, a hot younger woman who walks into his office, but also as like some way to recapture some semblance of joy in his life and not just she's hot, gotta fuck it. Like mm-hmm. that's because that's that's James Bond. James Bond is right. that's hot, gotta fuck it. It's it's not really so much. And like, oh, she'll like shoot a bad guy like then. Then boom, she did it. Nice. Way to go, money pussy. <laughs> With your ridiculous ass name. Whereas in, in this, like Jamie Lee Curtis has a lot of agency. John Cleese is not just specifically in it for like, like th- there's things that this movie does that uh, adhere in some ways to the typical archetype of this type of story, but also do their own thing and give a little bit more depth that I think makes it more worthwhile of an experience. Um, and I, that much very much so goes for Kevin Klein, who is, so much so wanting to do the diehard thing here and just be like the bad, tough American dude. Uh, actually, mm. even though this movie predates Die Hard, but he's like that stereotype of the American guy. Just right. gonna brute force, shoot him up, fuck it up, punch kick. Don't call me an idiot. I'm the smartest guy alive. Um, just doing rails in the bathroom straight off the toilet seat. And he's like the worst guy. <laughs> And, and, and he's abs- he, he contributes literally nothing to this entire movie. He's strictly showing that his manner of, of conducting business is doing nothing but getting in the way. And usually that guy is pre-1988. He's like, you're a fucking hero. He's the guy. And instead, it's this wonky-ass barrister. And the and the woman who have all the hold all the cards, do all the real legwork and do all the the trickery and chicanery. Chicanery. I love the word chicanery. I can never say it enough. <laughs> Don't disagree. Uh, also, you gotta love John Cleese dancing naked in the apartment. Yeah, no, it, it's hard not. <laughs> the whole premise of like, oh, you're in the wrong house. This this is my friend gave me this key and he went away on holiday for X amount of time. You're in the wrong house. Well, actually, we rented it from him. Oh, well, that's actually a very um, uh, funny coincidence. And, uh, oh, I bought your home. We've met previously. Oh, look at this all coming together. (laughs) God, John Cleese is so fucking funny. Him and Michael Palin, obviously, are both two of the funniest men to ever live. But, oh. I I know. It's... And Michael Palin is great in this. <laughs> great. In this. Oh my he, God! Yes, he does such a good job with. Uh, now his 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 father had a stutter, so he he is intimately familiar with with how to imitate a stutter and what it should sound like and all that. So from from that side of things, he 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 kills it, of course. But to you know do the whole stutter thing, and also have the comedic timing that he has, but because he is Michael Palin, that's what he does. I mean, it, it, it's flawless. 
And one of the, the small things about the stutter that I, I, I read about uh, after one of the times I watched this movie, where I heard Michael Palin talk about it, is that if you go back and watch it again, he stutters a lot less around people he's comfortable with. And so his stutters are a lot more around people he's uncomfortable with, which apparently is a very common thing for stutterers. So in the scenes where he's with George, he almost never stutters. And same to some uh, right. extent with, with Wanda as well. But when he's with Kevin Klein, he stutters constantly. And that's mm-hmm. part of the psychological part of, of having to stutter, which I thought was really interesting. Um, which again comes to him breaking that stutter at the end. Right. When he finds steamrolls Kevin Klein. <laughs> oh, oh god, just what a fucking final scene of just that the premise of John Cleese standing in a barrel of just scum while he's being held at gunpoint by a man standing in cement while a steamroller is just slowly crawling towards them from <laughs> the back of the screen. Revenge! Revenge! It's also so funny because part of this plot would not work in America because in America you board the plane from your terminal, not on the runway. Right. Well, it depends on the airport as well. It, it does, but largely... I, the yeah, only time I've ever, the yeah, the only time I've ever boarded, and it's just me, but the only time I've ever boarded a plane from the uh, the runway was when I was in Europe. Uh, every other time, it's been straight through the terminal. So seeing this when I was a kid, before I had ever been on the plane, I was like, "Oh man, that looks horrifying." And then mm-hmm. I had didn't experience that until I was in my twenties. Um, like a small New Jersey or. I think it was like the Trenton Mercer airport, like a very small airport there, a very small airport in like Wyoming, like not JFK, not LaGuardia, not Newark, you know, those you'll go straight from the terminal. Yeah. That, which is why it was such hour a hour of airline travel with Corbin and Josh. <laughs> but for real though, that shit tripped me up so much. Like when I was, um, flying to Poland, I had a, a, a layover in Austria and we got out of the plane like just out of the plane <laughs> and I was like, where the fuck are we going? <laughs> and then and then I went to go on my next flight and you know, I'm following the thing and like you get to the, the terminal and it's like, alright, here we go and you go downstairs, I'm like, where the fuck are we going? And then people just like just you just walk up to the plane they're like, we're not fucking bringing this shit up to you you go to it, bitch. Look how big it is look how small you are in comparison, you walk over there <laughs> and and it's it's honestly cool because you can load from both sides of the plane so that not everyone's trying to all get in the front. Like there's a back entrance to this plane. Why don't you use it? Um, but it is very disorienting. But it is funny that like a big part of this movie hinders on the fact that you have to do that. And at most major airports in the U.S., you don't do that. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Also, I get a kick out of every time seeing Kevin Klein uh, flick the gun to himself from around the, the metal detector. Because for one thing, it, it it's hilarious. And for another thing, I'm, I'm sure that security wasn't that lax pre-9-11, but it also feels like it might as well have been. And right. that moment really encapsulates it for me. And it's just like one of those things where it's like, we watch it now and it's like, that's just ridiculous. And it's just like, well, is it? I don't. I don't know. Like it was so long ago. And obviously us ourselves 
never experienced that. It's like, it's funny because of the action. The physical comedy is funny, but on such another level, it's just, I don't know if this is believable or not. Like, I don't know if this is me having a suspension of disbelief or just plausible comedy, plausible observational comedy. Oh man. I mean, like it's there, funny. There was... I don't know why it's funny. And because it's just ridiculous, but it's also so slightly believable because you hear stories about how like you didn't used to need a plane ticket to go up to the gate so that you could wave your um, friends or family's plane goodbye. And, you know, like listening to stories about what security was like, where it was like, you know, uh, uh, high five on a slap on the ass. And I mean, this is like that. It's hilarious. I think about I think about that moment every single time I go through a metal detector. Every sure. single time, without fail. I, I typically don't have those kind of thoughts when I'm going through a metal detector, but sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts going through a metal detector? Oh boy, I hope I don't have any hidden guns on me somewhere. <laughs> Yo, it, it, it's like when you get pulled over by a cop and you're like, fuck, I hope I don't have meth in here. When it's like, I, I don't have meth. I think that's with the, with the metal detector too. It's like, I hope I don't have like a knife on me. It's like, I don't have a knife. Like, why would there be one on me? Um, I actually knew a kid who accidentally brought a knife to school one day. Like he went camping or some shit like that. And like, it was just like in his backpack for leftover from like the weekend trip he went on and like turned it in to like the principal and was like, Hey, I've, I found this. It was leftover from like a camping trip. I'm sorry. I don't want to have it on me. Like, I know it's bad for me to have this, like a 10 year old kid and got in like serious trouble for doing so. I once got in trouble in college because my, I was home for a weekend and my brother used to have this Bowie knife. And of course he did. We shared a room my parents' house, and he like threw it in the wrong bag and ended up in one of my bags. So I was at brought it, I accidentally brought it to college with me. And it was in my dorm room, and I had like a list of stuff I had to bring back, and like I was like I think it was near my dad's birthday, so I had like a list of birthday gift ideas and shit all on this desk right in in my my room. I was I was gonna go home in a couple of weeks. I wanted to have everything together so I could bring everything back, and I was out to class and I came back and apparently there had been a fire drill while I was in class and the fire marshals came and just like, I guess they just did like walk through some of the rooms at random as his policy. And they walked through mine and they saw this like gigantic ass Bowie knife. And I got called into the, to, to the Dean's office. And they're like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And I was like, look, I know how bad this looks. <laughs> Believe me, this is not mine. I, I, it was next to a list of other random shit that was like next to a birthday gift list and, and some other random weird knickknacks I had to bring home. Like, if I was planning something nefarious, I probably wouldn't leave it on a fucking desk. Like, please don't kick me out of school. And they were like, all right, I guess, but you're a fucking idiot. And I was like, I guess I am. Yeah. Officer, I swear it's not even mine. Oh, the worst is when it actually isn't because it's saying that sounds so unbelievable. But mm-hmm. anyway. anywho, yeah, anywho. yeah, anywho. Um, 
Uh, I really don't have too much else to say about airports and places of violence. Just steamrollers. Just keep around more. Uh, Practical, man. Very practical. Earth conscious steamrollers. (laughs) Very environmentally (laughs) friendly steamrollers. Um, All about it. Leave them around. Give them to kids. Sure. Give them to the homeless. They'll figure out what to do with them. (laughs) Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I really don't have too much else to say about it. It really mostly is kind of just it. It's very John Cleese centric for a movie that really doesn't have almost anything to, to do with him because his character changes so much the arc of the film, even though plot wise, that really almost almost has nothing to do with him. Right. Um, like seeing him try to rob his own house because he it can't get the locket back from his wife is hilarious. And he's doing it because he is a sad, broken man who doesn't have any agency over how his life is going anymore. And he's getting steamrolled <laughs> by by his wife because of his own mistakes. And that's what he feels as though it's come to. And to see that change into, you know, eventually how he decides to fully abandon his life is the real, it's the real story of the movie. The, the facial reactions and just reactions in general, when his wife and daughter come home while Wanda's there for like an affair rendezvous and, and Otto's just also there for some reason. And it's just, it's so clear to him that he has no control whatsoever what's going on in his life. And it's just like this screaming and just like the blank, just completely lost expressions of just like, I truly have no idea what's happening. And I have no ability to affect the outcome of what's about to happen. I'm just here. Just fucking unreal. Stu, why are you making pudding at three o'clock in the morning? Because I've lost all control of my life, darling. (laughs) Uh, Oh, that show was ahead of its time. Go watch the Rugrats, guys. Gotta love Rugrats. Best Jewish cartoon ever. Their their VHS for the Rugrats movie was orange. And that was always a very cool thing in my household. Gotta love it. Gotta love it. Uh, Yeah, I don't really have anything else to say about this one. Do you? Nope, four. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking I'm right there with you. Four sounds solid to me. Four sounds right. It feels mm. right. Uh, all right. Well, Corbin Heller, what you got for next week? Uh, I'm going with Birdcage. Oh, okay. Never seen it. Want to see it. You've never seen the Birdcage? Nope. Okay, okay, okay. I I left up a screen of films that I wanted to 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 pluck from, so I think I'm going to the doghouse. Going to pick one relatively at random here, and I am going to go with Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Ooh, I haven't felt shitty things about my relationship in a while. Good, 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 good. Tight, 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 tight. Yeah, I've actually I have um, never seen that movie. I haven't seen it in years because it made me sad and confused and I didn't like how it felt. Um, but I was rewatching Adaptation the other day because I love that movie. 
and I was thinking about how I should probably rewatch this one because I think I have seen it literally once and I remember almost nothing from it. So that seems like a good pick for a rewatch to me. Good, 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 good. All right. Well, then that Perfect. is uh, those are them's them's the picks for next week. That is 1996's The Birdcage and 2004's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Uh, tune in potentially next week to see what we got to say about them. Give them a watch beforehand if you feel like you want to. And, you know, we'll be here to, to dive into them a little bit. Uh, you know, pick out some topics, thoughts, feelings, and get into that. Uh, if, in the meantime, I'd like to follow the show <clears throat> on Twitter. You can do so at uh, Big Screen Juice. If you'd like to follow Corwin on Twitter, you can do so at Corwin Heller. And if you'd like to follow myself on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy. And if you'd like to send emails to the show, movie recommendations, ideas, what have you, you can do so at uh, juicingthebigscreen at gmail.com. And until next week, maybe, y'all have a good one. Bye.